Welcome to Voices on the Side with me, Leah Kim. Today's episode is the final one for our first season, but I am very happy to announce that a season two is coming. I was initially pretty hesitant to even start a podcast, as there are already millions of podcasts out there, but I am really proud of the capsule of conversations we have created so far. I deeply believe in the work of elevating and celebrating these stories that are less represented and of being part of the progress that is happening. It feels very apt to close this series out with Lin Lu, who has always been a fiercely proud ABC, American-born Chinese. Although she was technically born in Taiwan and we get into all those particulars. Lin is a mother, an entrepreneur, lifestyle expert working with brands like Hermes and Burberry, and even an actual queen. She was Miss LA Chinatown. Lynn and I went to college together at UCLA, and I have to admit, I've always felt a bit intimidated by her. She exudes this self-confidence that I didn't relate to, and an ownership of and comfort in who she is. Knowing more of her story now, I see how the warm and loving relationship she had with her parents had everything to do with how she sees and carries herself. We talk about what an amazing role model her mother was, how her own daughter saved her from the depths of grief, and the absolute necessity of having a village, however you create that village to be. Lynn's pride in being Asian American is contagious, and I love how much she illuminates the glamour of our community. Please enjoy this aspirational and celebratory conversation with Lynn Liu. Let me just first officially welcome you, Lynn, to Voices on the Side. I'm so happy we can reconnect on this platform. Thank you for being here. Thank you. I'm so excited for this. Yeah, well, I mean, there's many reasons why I was eager to talk to you. There's so many interesting things that you do and the way you portray yourself as an Asian American woman, I really admire and respect. But I'd love to just start from the beginning with where you grew up. Did you grow up in Southern California? I did. I was born in Taiwan, uh, Taipei, Taiwan, but I actually came to the United States as a six-month-old. So um, you've heard the term ABC, American-born Chinese. So I really consider myself to be one, although technically I am not, um, but I really consider <laughs> myself having, you know, being American-born and um, was fully raised here in the U.S., Spent a little bit of time back in Taiwan as an adult, um, briefly as a toddler, but, you know, most of my time has been spent here in L.A. Yeah. So you've been Southern California because you also went to college there, which is where we met, of course. Mm -hmm. So you've been there for the bulk of your life, if not all of your my life. My entire maybe. life has been spent here in SoCal. Um, yeah, pretty much. I mean, like I said, I spent a little bit of time in Asia as an adult. Um, in more recent years, because of business and, um, you know, just I wanted to experience living life in Taiwan. So I actually had my daughter there. This was back in 2017. Oh. Yes. Yeah. That's a whole nother I, story. I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, oh, wow. And we'll get into that because I that was such a, an amazing experience for me. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, totally want to hear about that. I didn't, I didn't know that. That's mm -hmm. so, I'm like, I have so many questions yeah. in my head, but I want to like stay, <laughs> I want to stay chronological just for a minute. But do you have siblings? I do not. Um, only child. Okay. And I had a little bit more of an unusual upbringing as compared to other, you know, Asian Americans or ABCs that I um, 
grew up with um, in the sense that my parents were both artists. Um, so my mother actually, we came out here because she was doing her graduate degree at UCLA in dance choreography, which is interesting. And right, because most, I know, like, I feel like most of our friends and their parents were all like in the sciences, right? They were engineers or doctors or um, some other, that type of professional. But my mom was a, a, as a dance teacher and a dance artist. And my father was a ceramic or is a ceramic engineer, uh, now a ceramic artist, but really an expert in his field. Um, so I had a, you know, a little bit of a different experience. And I didn't realize this until I grew up, went to UCLA, um, was around other, you know, Asian Americans who were just like, for example, I would have some people say, oh my gosh, the way you talk to your parents, like the fact that your parents say that they love you, that's so strange. <laughs> you know, I'm like, really? Yeah. That's so weird because I guess it was a very much, very much like an American parent sort of thing to be very loving and to be physically loving with your children, to be embraced, to be hugged and kissed and, you know, all of that. But I had that experience growing up and I, I definitely didn't have that traditional like tiger mom where the sole focus was on getting, you know, perfect grades and scoring high in your SATs and all of that. I certainly had a little bit of that pressure, but more of the focus was on like expanding my horizons um, culturally and artistically. So that would be because they're artists at heart, right? Like they just, the way they live their lives. Right. Well, not just that actually. So to, to kind of further delve into that, my mom was also a huge um, proponent of Chinese culture, having studied Chinese dance. And so Chinese traditional dance was her platform to express herself, even though she studied, you know, dance choreography, modern dance and all of that. Um, she really was at heart a, an educator. And so for her, uh, her platform was that she wanted to bring Chinese culture, which she was immensely proud of in the form of sharing her art, which was dance, um, and to bring that to other communities. And so growing up, she was a Chinese school teacher, a Chinese school principal, and also a Chinese traditional dance teacher. And so from the age of three, I would spend all of my weekends um, with her, either, you know, she was teaching classes and I would just, you know, be there either helping or just tagging along, um, or she would volunteer and do presentations. She would go to libraries. She would bring her dance troupe and do performances everywhere at different fairs at, you know, all these different venues really just to spread our culture. And so from a very young age, I was taught to be proud of who I was as a Chinese American and to share that through the art of dance. And so in that sense, again, it was also a little bit different. I know there were a lot of other girls that had that experience, but to come at it from the daughter of the teacher and my mom was very outspoken. She did not have perfect English. She had very good English, but she just had a really outgoing personality and she had a lot of confidence. And so she she spread that she had just this amazing energy and aura and people were really drawn to her. And of course your mother is who you look up to. She was my, my idol. And so I really just so much of that from her. So from an early age, I was taught to be proud of my heritage and my culture and to spread that message everywhere I went. Yeah. My God, that's so lucky. And your parents just sound like they gave you such a wonderful childhood and I know that Southern California has a lot of diversity and a lot of Asians. Were the communities you found yourself in, where especially where your mom was sharing about culture through dance and teaching, were they two very mixed 
people like mixed groups of people or were they typically more Asian or were there a lot of other races there too? So, you know, we, I grew up in Roland Heights, the San Gabriel Valley, which we now refer to like as the 626, um, the area code. Um, and of course we know it to be really diverse, but back in like the early eighties, it was still not what it is today, which was very, very much Asian. You grew up in Bay area, right? Yeah. I remember. Yeah. Okay. So kind of similar, um, in terms of diversity. So for sure there were other Asians, but nothing like it is now. And I, I certainly remember being uh, a minority and, you know, feeling different. Actually, there was, there was a brief time, you know, in my childhood where we moved to um, China for a year. So when I was five years old, we actually lived in China for one year. Uh, my father was a consultant for the Chinese government in building up um, their ceramics industry. And so for that year, you know, I was in kindergarten. Um, I spent it there being homeschooled. When I came back to the States and re-entered, it was either kindergarten or first grade. I believe I did kindergarten. Um, I had to go to ESL. I had to relearn English. Mm -hmm. And so I, wow. I remember that um, distinctly. I remember going to school for Halloween and my mom would put me in these elaborate Chinese traditional costumes, <laughs> which she thought was amazing. And I was mortified by, I was just like, how am I supposed to tell anyone who I am? Like what this costume is, because it wasn't even <gasps> like, I don't know. Are you aware of that TV show on Disney plus right now? It's called ABC American born Chinese. Yeah. I haven't seen it yet, but have, have you seen that? No, I've heard okay. of it. Is it okay. good? Yeah, it's good. It's good. I've been watching it with my kids. Um, but the story is about, uh, it's, it's based on the story of the monkey King and the monkey King is a mythical character in uh, Chinese lore. And it's very, it's a very famous story. All the kids growing up hear about the story and the monkey King is a monkey who turns into like a, like a, a heavenly, you know, king, right? So he's in the heavens. In the Chinese version of it, he's dressed in this traditional garb. And so he's kind of like, he's got like a monkey face and the tail and he moves like a monkey, but he doesn't look like, he's like wearing clothes, you know? And he's wearing like traditional Chinese right. clothing. <laughs> so she put me in that costume. And so I had to go to school and I'd be like, no, I'm the monkey king. And they'd be like, but you don't look like a monkey. <laughs> like, I don't get it. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I had a lot of those instances that I remember specifically, it was like, can I just be like a princess? Can I, or can I just be a fairy, yeah. you know, because I just wanted to be like everyone else. And she wouldn't have any of that. Although one year I did get my wish and I, I was a princess and I was a very, I was just a, a very typical American princess and I enjoyed it. And then I went back to doing my, <laughs> my elaborate costumes. And then looking back, it was you know, as a child, it was, you want to be normal, you know, you don't want to stand out, you kind of just want to like, fit in with everyone else. But, you know, having my mom as that figure, to encourage confidence in me to be different from such an early age, you know, I think really helped build that confidence and self esteem for my later years. Yeah, I think like, we can't change the fact that we are different, and that we grew up knowing that, you know, like kids know, we know what we look like versus what other people look like. And you make a really good point about California today versus the eighties right. when we were growing up, like people always think, oh, well, California is so diverse, especially with Asians, but it really depends where you were specifically. And it certainly was not as much back then versus today. I think like we all grew up knowing that we were different, but 
I think the way that your parents really celebrated your heritage and they themselves sound like they were, especially your mom, they were so proud, you know, like they were out, they were involved in the community. They were teaching about Chinese culture. So you had like this living example of your people having something to be proud of. And then also if you were going to lessons and classes with your mom, then you're seeing the other people who are there listening, right? And learning from her. So all of that's very validating. Yes. My mom was really um, like a community builder. And so, like I mentioned back in the early eighties, even in Roland Heights, it was still, you know, not, not as Asian dominant as it is now. Um, So I remember all the other experiences that other kids had growing up, which was, or the other minority children had growing up, for example, going to school, bringing dumplings, like leek dumplings. And can you imagine the looks on people's faces when you opened up your little Mm -hmm. Tupperware and the the smell of garlic and leek, right? Infiltrated (laughs) the lunchroom. And I remember being super embarrassed by that, but also just like, but the food is so good and they want to eat it, but I'm also kind of ashamed. So certainly I still had those types of experiences, but outside of, you know, everyday life, my mom worked so hard to build community. And so she started um, different organizations. Um, You know, one was a one for Chinese traditional dance, a big organization for that. Um, Our Chinese school was a big part of our community. Um, As I said, she was a teacher. She served as principal. She was constantly recruiting people to be part of our community. And it really grew, you know, under her leadership. And so she really became quite a figure within the Southern California, greater Chinese community. So people, and you know, as a result, knew who she was. I bring her up so often because she impacted my upbringing so much, not just in the sense of, you know, as a mother and um, teaching me values and, and all of those things, but really just independently as a woman, you know, someone to look up to. Yeah. So I, you know, I feel really, really grateful for that experience. And I recognize how different it was from other people's. Yeah, absolutely. I think most of us had the experience where maybe our immigrant parents just didn't even bother engaging in the community, you know, Mm -hmm. like it was just about keeping their own individual families afloat and keeping your head down survival that whole kind of yeah survival yes and it sounds like your mom was really ahead of her time because I feel like now our generation of Asian Americans and people of color are really vocal and really proud and wanting to celebrate and wanting to be recognized and represented yes and your mom was already doing that decades ago that's so funny so you, you, that's, yeah um, framing it like that I would say 100 percent. you know she was definitely ahead of her time in that sense where um, most people in our community were like you said everyone's just trying to get by I mean we were by no means wealthy we were also she was working three jobs you know and as my dad was as mm-hmm. well and so it certainly wasn't like because we were sitting sitting on a lot of money or something and she had a lot of time on her hands it wasn't anything like that it was just she was just so passionate about that and I remember you know she would volunteer at my school my elementary school to do presentations to teach our kids about Chinese Lunar New Year she would come in you know with costumes and performances and make it really fun and interesting for the kids and this is 30 oh my how old am I (laughs) how old am I now um this is like (laughs) yeah almost four decades ago you know what I mean and so it was a very different time back then and certainly there was pushback and how brave she must have been 
with her broken English to put herself out there. You know, I remember one incident in school where, you know, the teachers during open house or back to school, whatever it was, I told the parents, you know, to feel free to come to us if you have any concerns and schedule, you know, a parent teacher conference to talk to the parent, to talk to the teacher. And so my mom took that quite literally and scheduled it and went in for a meeting one day and the teacher was, you know, sort of gave her pushback and was like, why are you here? Your daughter's doing fine. And she's like, well, you said that I should be proactive and, and come and have a conversation with you. Um, I just wanted to see how she's doing in school. And she, I remember her coming home and feeling like the teachers were kind of insinuating that Chinese or Asian parents were overbearing, that she was being mm, overbearing um, by scheduling something in when there was nothing wrong with my behavior or my grades, mm. you know, and she didn't, mm. she didn't think that at all. She's like, no, you said open line of communication. So here I am. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. But that, you know, there were, there were constant reminders of us, you know, being different because of our, our background. And, you know, these are the same ex the shared experiences across the board for all of us who are Asian American with immigrant parents. Yeah, but I mean, one of the things I found really interesting about just following you from afar over the last, I don't know, maybe decade or whenever we all became more active on social media mm -hmm. was that you were very evidently proud of being Chinese American, yeah. you know, like the magazines that you had created, it was it was kind of the yes. same thing your mom was doing yes. and sharing things about Chinese culture. That's right. right. And, <laughs> and even that um the it, it was it's such a full circle moment that you were on that news channel talking about Lunar New Year because that's what your mom did for you when you were in elementary school. Totally for your totally. for your classrooms, right? So oh my gosh, speaking of that, do you remember that story, it was not this New Year's, but last New Year's. And it was not Lunar New Year, but it was like just January 1st, mm -hmm. from which the movement uh, Very Asian was born. Do you remember? It was with the Korean yes. newscaster who was talking about dumplings. dumplings yes. You mentioned already. And yeah, I think it was a caller got, that called in, right? And said, like, that's too Asian. Yes. Like, why are you talking about that? I remember yes. that. Yeah. You're being, that's very, it's very Asian of her. That's yeah. And so it does take, I mean, it shouldn't, but it does take a real confidence and bravery to put yourself out there as a minority, as an Asian American and, and be like, Hey, this is stuff about our culture that is important. And, you know, like she got a very, uh, you know, public pushback right. against it. Yeah. Right. And something wonderful eventually came of it, but in this day and age that's still happening you know, right like yeah. it's just and I think it's ultimately a sign of progress when there is this resistance collective resistance criticism yes right, right. yeah right. so it's kind of like oh we're actually we're making progress and our efforts in showing up and speaking up and everything it's doing something and I wonder, have you ever, I mean, the way I see the stuff that you do, it always seems very positive. And, you know, I tend to go into, I can go into like long essays of like, oh, all this like discrimination and I can get a little bit heavy, <laughs> but I love the way that you, you celebrate in this like really proud way and this aspirational way, you know, like, 
showing the glamour, as you mentioned, and like the fun things. And I wonder if, is, is that how it feels for you most of the time? Or do you feel the heaviness? You know what? I so appreciate that you recognize that because I do make um, an effort to to really display the positive aspects of um, my life, which I guess in turn really is, you know, I'm just trying to be authentic to who I am. And a huge part of that is being Chinese and Chinese American. I don't know if you remember, I think we skipped over this, but Lee, do you remember that I actually served as Miss Chinatown, Miss LA Chinatown back in college? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That was, course. and that yeah. was really, that was really, um, you know, a big part of my life as well, because it was formed part of my college experience. I think I was in my junior year and I was not a big pageant girl. It wasn't like I grew up wanting to be in like a tiara and, you know, poofy dresses. Certainly wasn't, you know, that I aspired to win a pageant, but a couple of the girls that were in upper grade or uh, a little older than us at UCLA, I think they were recruiting some of the girls I really admired. And they were like, you should do this pageant. It's just a wonderful experience. You meet other girls and it's a lot of fun. So I went out for that and unexpectedly won and did not realize at the time that you, you know, it was really like a, a community service position that you were signing up for. And so for one full year, literally 365 days of that year, when I was serving as Miss LA Chinatown Queen, I attended upwards of like 250 events. So wow. yeah, in my crown and chi pao, the traditional um, Chinese dress, the chung sam. And uh, yeah, 200, 200 to 250 events. I can't remember the exact number, but it was like, like at least, you know, five a week. And I was just there as a representative of our community and talk about training. You know, you, you learn on the spot, right? And you really have to put your best foot forward. And in that type of a position, you're meant to be celebrated. So people aren't really putting you on the spot. You know, beauty queens are not being asked the hard questions as politicians are, right? Um, but, mm. but you know, maybe that's part of where it came from. I'm used to just really wanting to highlight um, the things that I admire most and really want to share about my community. That platform really gave me a great start to that. And I think it obviously influenced the rest of my adulthood and my career path. And so, like I said, Later on, when I came back into media, I had the opportunity to uh, edit a magazine called Vivid, and that was for a, a well-known um, Chinese jewelry retailer based in San Gabriel Valley. And they had sort of like this internal catalog that they sent out to their clients, and they were looking for an editor-in-chief, and you know, they found me, and I was like, oh, perfect. I always wanted to do magazines, and I kind of had a little extra time on my hands then. And so that's how I kind of jumped back into the magazine world or back into media. Um, and that particular magazine was Chinese and English. It was bilingual. And it was, again, meant to service mm -hmm. their, their mailing list of mm -hmm. clients who were all Chinese and buying um, luxury watches and jewelry. And that's kind of why I ended up ultimately like the few magazines that I ended up uh, launching myself were also in that same category because that was what I knew, which is the content was for a bilingual audience. It was both in Chinese and in English and was really highlighting the um, Chinese American community within Los Angeles or within the greater uh, so SoCal area. So society and like lifestyle and, you know, fashion and luxury. Those were the, the four different areas that we covered. 
And so it was kind of like a natural extension of the things I was interested in as well. Um, that's kind of why you see that later on, right? And now even on my my current social media mm -hmm. presence, I continue to do activations and, and marketing for luxury brands. It's sort of my bread and butter, you know, it's where I came from, but also things that I just really enjoy doing. And I think for me, when I think of representing my community, I, I kind of just come back to myself, like I am by nature of my makeup, Chinese American. And whether or not I want to, or am aware of it, um, I'm constantly representing my community. So whatever I'm putting forth out there represents, you know, me as an individual, but collectively my community as well. And so I just want to put my best foot forward at all times, but also be authentic and be true to who I am because we all have, you know, different strengths and weaknesses and we're all doing different things. And, you know, we need all of that really to create a a big picture of who we are as a community. And I think it's it's great to talk about like things that you talk about, like you said, right? Injustices and history of oppression and you know areas that we really need to focus on and work on. But we also need like the the other side, which is like, you know, there's so many of us who are doing amazing, incredible things. And that was what I really wanted to do with my magazines, which is highlight individuals that were making big progress or even just who were really successful and whatever it was that they were doing, you know, whatever endeavor it is, like there's nothing, there's no judgment here. You know, there's no, there's no saying that, oh, this is really important that we do. And this is not important because this is just about fashion or, you know, some, whatever it might be, mm. right? There's no judgment. It, we all are interested in different things. And, and all that makes up the whole. And so if we just, you know, we, if we highlight all the positive aspects and get that out there, that's helping our community. You know, it is. And we don't have to specifically talk about necessarily like negative things or, or, or challenging things. I mean, that's all part of the makeup of it. But let's talk about like what inspires you. Let's talk about who you are. You know, let's talk about all the great things that you're doing. And just by nature of you being um, an Asian American, you are contributing to our, our progress as a community. Does that make sense? I, I, I said that in totally way too many makes, words. <laughs> no, it totally makes sense. And I love it because it's really the opposite of how Asians were very minimally represented or stereotypically represented in say media when we were little, you know, yes. and like kind of feeling like, oh, anytime we're seen on TV, we're seen as a a set of stereotypes and I love the way that you live and the stuff that you focus your work on. You're just showing up and being like, hey, this is who I am. This is what my culture is. And it's pretty badass. That's Thank like you. what the message is that comes through. And I love it. And also you're because you've got two children mm -hmm. and your husband's also Chinese. He is. He's also Chinese American like I am. He is a true yes. ABC. He was born in LA. Born true and raised ABC. in LA. Yes. <laughs> But we're both unique in the sense that our parents, um, his mom and dad also were very involved in their Chinese school community. Um, she was a teacher as well. And so uh, both of our moms instilled in us um, good pronunciation. <laughs> like a, a mm. very, and like a, um, they put a lot of importance on us learning the language, at least verbally, you know? Um, so we have similar in terms of our levels. We're, we're kind of similar. We're both probably at around like the third, fourth grade level in terms of reading and writing, but at least we're able to express ourselves fully and communicate. And our business really relies on that. So um, as I mentioned before, mm. we've, we've always been in business. Um, we're entrepreneurs and um, we have several different types of businesses across various industries. And my husband is in product development and manufacturing. And so 
naturally, you know, our factories have been in China and in Taiwan. And so we communicate with them extensively. And so our Chinese has only gotten better over the years and not worse. And we really want to pass that down to our children. And so I really love, I think he and I, we've been, this year we'll have been married 16 years together for 21 um, so our, our paths are wow. very much aligned in, in terms of our values. And Wait, did you, does that mean you met in college? At the very end of, did you mean in college? no, right after, and I want to say like, yeah, when I was 22, right maybe. Yeah, right at the end. Mm -hmm. Wow. <laughs> That's amazing. I know it is. It's kind of crazy. Um, but yeah, now we have two children and many businesses and, um, and life is crazy, but it's very gratifying. You had your son first. And my son first. He's turning 11 very soon. Yeah. My daughter is uh, has just turned six. Uh, my son, we actually had here in the U.S. And then I don't know if you're aware of my story about my mother passing away. I know I talked a lot about her, but. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know details. I know that she did pass away, um, but I'd love to hear any part of your story that you are happy to talk about. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'm happy to share. I'm very open about this Um this part of my life, because I think, you know, um, one of the things actually, one of the questions you had listed, you were like, you know, what did it mean to you when you became a mother, right? Like, how did that, how did your identity shift mm. when you became a mother? And what's interesting is I definitely felt like there was a shift when I became a mother, but more so a shift when I lost my own mother, because I had to mm. go from being a, a child, someone's child to no longer being someone's child. I don't know if it makes sense. I mean, obviously mm -hmm. I still have my father mm -hmm. and I'm still always going to be my mother's daughter, but no longer being able to rely on my mother, which we all do, right. To some extent, regardless of your relationship, you know, to know that you're, you have a mother mm -hmm. um, is to be, you know, kind of like a child still, right. Um, no matter how old you are, yeah. right. You know that you can get some comfort or something from your mom, hopefully if you have that type of relationship with her. And I certainly did. I had that kind of a, um, loving relationship with her. And when she passed, I was, it was like my worst fear was realized because I lost mm. the, the person who loved me the most and who I loved the most. And it was like my worst fear come true. And what was it, where was I going to go from that? You know? And so I thought that after mm. my mother passed that I would not be able to have another child. And so I insisted, I was like, mm. there's no way I'm one and done. I also had a pretty difficult time um, after the birth of my son, I had postpartum. I know you've talked about, you know, sharing your story mm -hmm. about having postpartum depression. So looking back, I certainly had that and it was pretty intense. And so that was a struggle. Um, and so by the time when my mother passed and my son was about four, she, he was turning four was when she passed. I said, that, that's it, you know, for me. And then I'm going to tell you the story of how, how my daughter came about. So it was a few months after my mom had passed and I was, you know, obviously deep in grief and we had a trip to Europe planned. And so we were in the South of France, I believe, one of our favorite places and um, just trying to get my mind off of things. And I was looking around, I was shopping around, you know, looking for something with nothing in particular. My husband was like, Oh, what do you want to buy here? And I was like, I don't know if I happen to see a, a, a Kelly bag. I want to get one. And he said, Oh, I really like that name. Mm -hmm. It's such a cute name. My son's name is Christopher. And he said, if we had a, ever had another daughter, we should name her Kelly. That would be really cute. Christopher and Kelly. And so I said, yeah, I like that name, but you know, I think I'm done. That's it for me. No more kids. And literally the next day we got on the plane, came back home to LA and got home. And re I realized I was like, 
uh oh, my period is late. <laughs> it's missing. <laughs> like, <laughs> wait a minute. I had been abroad for I think two or three weeks and I had just forgotten about it. Um, but of course, when you get home and you're starting to get back to normalcy, I looked at my calendar and I'm like, wait a minute, my period has been gone for a week. Holy cow. So went straight to um, get a test, came home, tested positive, 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 did three tests. And I was like, oh my God, I'm pregnant. <laughs> How the heck did this happen? Right. <laughs> And my first reaction was to just like burst into tears. And my husband was so cute. He was like, oh my God, it's okay. It's okay. We have options. Like he was so freaked out that I was freaking out. And, <laughs> you know, and I, I remember just bawling and saying, we don't have options. I have a baby coming. What am I going to do? <laughs> you know, I don't have my mom. And um, mm. took me a little bit of time and I calmed down. Once I was able to, you know, get to a state of calm, I immediately, the first thing you do when you find you're pregnant is find out when you're due. So I went on my mm. phone and I was uh, backdating, trying to figure out when my last period was. And the date of my, the due date that popped up was the one year anniversary of my mom's passing. And so, no. yeah. so immediately mm. I knew wow. like instinctively without a doubt that I was going to have a daughter, um, that I would name her Kelly because we had discussed that and that she was an angel sent, um, by my mom to be with me. And, and she really, you know, she saved me from the depths of, of grief. And right after that, a couple months after that, we made a decision to relocate to Taiwan for the time being, because up until then we had traveled a lot back and forth between Taiwan and the US. And I couldn't do that pregnant. Um, and my husband needed to, mm. needed to be in Asia. And so we made a decision that we would live there for the time being. And I don't know if you're aware, but in Taiwan, they have these facilities. They're kind of like, they're like five-star hotels. Mm. Their postpartum centers. Korea too. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Korea has it. Okay. Yeah. So they're like five-star hotels and they're full service. And after you have your baby, you, you check in and they completely take care of everything. Right. So I'm sure Korea does it the same or, or probably better than. Yeah. I mean, my, my kids were not born in Korea, okay. but I, I know that I know my sister-in-law had a couple of children there. So yep. I have heard about how amazing it is. I mean, yeah. do you want me to go into it? It's ridiculous. It's like, yes, uh, yes. No. I mean, how long were you, do you stay for two weeks or do you stay for 30 days confinement? You can, you can stay for you as long as how long you stay? Yeah. You can stay for as long as you want. I mean, you're paying for it. Right. So it's expensive, but it's, 100% worth it. And it's kind of you know, a shame that they don't offer these services here in the US because women desperately need it. I mean, it's hard enough to be a mother, but to be without community or to be without um, maybe your parents or for me, it was my mom, right? I really needed my mom to be around. And because I didn't have her, you know, the second best option for me was to go to Taiwan and have one of these postpartum centers. And um, uh, it helped tremendously with my healing um, my state of mind and just to have that support system of professionals because literally they have an OB on staff. They have a gynecologist on staff. They have, I'm sorry, OB gynecologist, um, but they also have pediatricians. They have nurses around the clock who are taking care of your baby. Um, you're taking classes on teaching you how to breastfeed or for recovery. You're getting like recovery massages. I mean, literally I had a massage every other day. Mm. I don't mean to brag. I know people are going to hate me after hearing this, but I mean, like it was amazing. <laughs> it was amazing. And, and, uh, you know, I came out of that in so much better shape than I did my first pregnancy because after my first birth, I mean, 
obviously I was very uh, lucky to have a postpartum nanny who my mom hired to come help me at my house and obviously had my mom back then too. But you know how it is in the States. I mean, you're really all alone. You're not, you don't have a community. Mm. You're, you're learning as you go. And one person who's helping you like a night nurse can only do so much, right? You're still really doing so much of it yourself. And it was really hard the first time, but the second time, also being a second time mother, I don't know for yourself, it was, if it was easier the second time, but it was certainly easier. And I had that, you know, experience at the postpartum center. So the second time around um, was just so much better of an experience for me. Yeah. I mean, I really, I relate to you for different reasons, but you know, my, my two are six and a half years apart. Okay. Yours are five years five apart. Five years apart. Yes. Are they? Yeah, which is like a pretty big age gap mm-hmm. for most of my friends. And most of our friends, probably their kids are like a couple years apart, right. maybe three. Right. Right. So I was very much like you after having my son. I was just like, I don't know if I can go back to potentially going through those hard, that hard season yeah. of newborn life. And I was very scared about postpartum depression again. And so for sure, the second time around was so much better because it wasn't brand new and everything, but it was also because I had learned that I need support. Right. I need, I need a village, however I'm going to do it, however I'm going to, you know, set it all up. I, I know I need help. Whereas the first time around, I just didn't, I was like, oh, well, other people do yeah. it just on their own. And, you know, because in the West, this idea of, a postpartum center, or even just like the 30 day confinement, you know, which I think Chinese and Korean cultures both have, right? right? Even if you weren't going to go to a center, it's built into our culture that those first 30 days, everything's about supporting, not the baby necessarily, but the The mother, mother, Mm -hmm. right? You have someone come and cook the food, certain foods to restore your health and it's just so that the mother can focus on healing and feeding the baby and all of that stuff. Like that's built into our cultures and it's not in the West, right? Yeah. The West is much more about how fast can you bounce back? My gosh. Like, oh, let's like, how quickly can you go out into the world with your newborn? The other day I saw somebody with like a three day old out in New York city. Oh and my I was gosh. just like, <laughs> what, are, what are you like? Go home. What are you doing? But there's this, but you're celebrated for that, right? right? It's like, oh man, you're just like, you just bounce right up. And um, so I, I bought into that mindset oh. first time around because I didn't know any better. And that was very difficult because I, and I had Riker in my son in London where I had no family, no close friends, you know, and, but I had been so independent my whole life. And I was just like, determined to just be totally fine which obviously you can't just no you can't just do that when you know you don't know how you're going to feel mentally and physically and so yeah you need you need the support however you're going to get it and there's it's a real void and just tragedy really in our cult in our western culture it really is we don't have that yeah I totally agree and knowing that the second time going in I just thought you know I don't have my mom now so I need to do whatever I can to make sure that I have a good experience and so for for me that was making sure that I had the support at the postpartum center and then of course I had uh, after that I hired a nanny and I just wanted to make sure I was in the right mental state because like I said I was still grieving the loss of my mom 
and to be dealing with mm. a pregnancy and to be dealing with, you know, being in a foreign country, even though I consider Taipei also, you know, my home now, but there were a lot of different factors going on. And I knew that I would be susceptible to falling into depression if I didn't take care of myself. So I set, set everything up so that I could have the most support that I could possibly need. And I, I think I was successful for the most part. I, because I had had so much trauma the first time, like you, you know? Um, mm. Yeah. And so really, it's just like, you know, as women, as we get older, as recognizing that no one's going to come and save you, you better take care of yourself. You better do what you need to do to, <laughs> right? To take care of yourself. And yeah. and we also, I don't know if it's an Asian American thing, or maybe it's just across the board as women, like so many of us are kind of waiting for permission to do things. And as I get older, I am learning mm. to give myself permission, but I don't need permission from any outside anyone or anything outside, it's all comes from me. And so I'm leaning into that, my power and just creating things rather than waiting for them. That's totally vague yeah. and like a whole nother topic, but I wanted to squeeze that in there. It's really important. And I think what the way that you are moving through your life, your kids are also seeing and constantly absorbing and learning from and like deriving their own understanding of what they have permission to do right. and how they have permission to le lead their lives, you know? And I feel like that's something for me that as hard as things were, you know, like, especially after having Riker and feeling like, oh my God, what's happened to my life and my identity and everything. Mm -hmm. There's so many amazing things that have come from being a mother. And it's kind of sad because for me, it took, it took having kids to want to, treat my own self better, mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. like it took, it's like, it, I wish I, I, we all are worthy enough as individuals. Like it shouldn't, it shouldn't take having children yeah. to be like, Oh wait, I am worthy, right. but whatever it takes. Right. I'm happy. I'm happy that we, we are where we are. And for me, it's like, well, I, I don't, I'm really mindful of whatever I may say about myself that may not bit that may be critical mm -hmm. or you know not very loving mm -hmm. and I'm just aware because I know my kids are paying attention yes. even my toddler yes. who's like two and a half like she they I I've learned they just verbatim regurgitate the stuff that I have said yes. whether it's conscious or not yes. like you know so yeah. it just makes me really think twice before I'm I just with like how I'm treating myself how I'm how I'm going to take up space yeah. and, and how you're showing you up, know, just how I'm going to live my life. Yes. Yes. 100%. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think that's why, you know, I sort of set the story about set the stage with who my mother was and what she meant to me, because that's how, you know, I show up now. I, I recognize as an adult, I have, we all, there's that joke that you kind of turn into your mother. Right. And it's so true mm. um, for me because I grew up watching my mother being proud of who she was, not being ashamed of her, her status as a minority and her culture, right? And, and um, I took cues from that. And now I put so much emphasis on that as well with my children, because even though, you know, we now live in a area that is very, I don't want to even just use the word diverse, because I feel like it's Asian dominant, you know, in certain areas, like I'm in Irvine. And yeah, and they're so used to seeing Asian people everywhere. And they go to a Chinese immersion school because like I mentioned, my husband and mm. I think that it's very important for them to, to learn their language at the very least. But him and I being ABCs, we speak English to each other. That's our, it's really our native mm. tongue, right? And so we're most 
comfortable yeah. communicating in English. And so unfortunately, even though we've tried our best to speak in Chinese with them at a certain level, when they get a little older, which they are at the age where now the questions are more complex, the conversations are, you know, beyond our, um, the level of complexities beyond um, what we're able to communicate in Chinese. And so we mostly speak to them in English. And it's, it's a shame because they don't have that environment to learn Chinese. And so we put them mm. in school specifically in order to cultivate that. And to give them that, um, yeah, the education. But that being said, they still know they come home. It's still English. They still won't speak Chinese to us. But at least they have that as a foundation for their future. So that should they, you know, as they get older, realize the importance of that language, you know, hopefully they'll want to keep expanding on that. And that's all we can do is to to give them those tools right now. But beyond just the language, you know, I don't know. Um, if you recall, I posted about this on social media a while back, but my son and I, we bond over Marvel movies and him and I, we mm. watched like all of them. And so we were so excited when Shang-Chi came out because it was going to be the first Asian mm. superhero with Marvel being in the mainstream, right? Obviously, you know, the industry. It's wild. Yeah, it's wild. Um, obviously, you know, being from Asia has their own superhero movies and whatnot, the whole entire industry of, of action movies. But being American and being, you know, from, how do I say this? Like this coming out of Hollywood is so much bigger deal, right? Just in terms of production quality and, and whatnot. But, um, but that was so big for us because when my son was younger and watching all the other Marvel movies, he was like, mom, why is my hair not yellow? He would say yellow, right? He's like, I don't mm. want to be Chinese because, you know, nobody Chinese is like a superhero. And so when Shang-Chi came out, I was like, finally, finally, this is an opportunity because suddenly he sees someone in his own likeness. And, and it's like, you know, this is the message that Rob was talking about is we need representation, but um, that was a really pivotal moment for us. And um, to be able to watch it together and enjoy and talk about, you know, talk about that storyline and talk about uh, Shang-Chi's character. And, and now we have American born Chinese that show on Disney plus, which him and I are watching together now. And it's, you know, drawing references from that story, the monkey King, right. Which I grew up with. Mm. And so I love that we are where we are. Like, I feel so blessed that, um, you know, we've come to this point in our history of Asian America, right. To, to be able to really celebrate our culture, especially this past year or year and a half or two years where you know, there's all this emphasis on, on promoting Asian American voices. And so I just think it's, you know, an amazing time. And I love that my children are here um, as in the age that they are, they're still young and so formative and they're seeing these faces and they're seeing this messaging and they're becoming more and more proud of who they are. And it's very different from what we grew up with, right? Where we had to, I was unusual in the sense that I had my mother who was showing me the way but um, now, you know, all children have access to this, right? And so it's, it's going to be transformative for them. Yeah, I mean, to your point, like, it's Hollywood putting their stamp of approval on Asian Americans taking up space mm -hmm. is huge. You kind of think like, oh, man, but there, it's just a movie. But it's not, right? No. Because it, it really is symbolic of the culture at large and... Just like you were saying, your son 
before was saying like, oh, I wish I, I wish I had yellow hair mm -hmm. because all he's seeing is superheroes that don't look like him, right? Mm -hmm. And he's like, well, I'm looking up to these characters, but I guess I can never be like them because I don't have yellow hair. And that really does something to a child's psyche, which is basically what happened, you know, decades ago right. when we were children. And so just to know that we are already seeing that the media landscape is so different. Yeah. And even though there is obviously much more superheroes that don't look like us, the fact that there are some that do. Yes. I'll, I don't normally watch all of the Oscars, but obviously this past year's season was just really important for Asian Americans. And I watched the whole thing from start to finish. And I was like, sobbing I was just like heaving with just like so emotional just seeing all the Asian wins and there's so much to be grateful for and hopeful for and I was going to say with the language the fact that even if you are not speaking Chinese at home with your children the fact that they are exposed to it so young and so consistently and you know even if it's a little bit in the home and then the bulk of it at school, like that's getting ingrained in their brains right now. I hope so. Yeah. I mean, and they're also learning the written language as well. So um, I, I don't have high expectations of like, I, I, I don't yeah. have high demands, right? Um, I'm definitely not a tiger mom in that sense, right? Like I don't, for me, you know, the most important things I want to instill them in them are good attitude and good manners and just trying their best and make, being able to make good decisions on their own. Beyond that, you know, in terms of grades and just like, just do your best, as long as you're learning and you're enjoying learning, to me, you know, that is the most important thing. And so they're actually learning to write Chinese. It's it's yeah. not like the- That's so hard. It's so hard. <laughs> it is so incredibly hard. hard. Yeah. And, and I, my son, he's going into fifth now. He has reached um, the level where I am almost- well, pretty much I'm no longer able to help him mm. now. Okay. I've reached the limits of my <laughs> capabilities in terms of the vocabulary. And I'm just like, I don't know what that word is. Sorry. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. And I'm like, usually using Google <laughs> translate. <laughs> oh God. I know. I know. That's so, what a thing to be a proud of though. Like how you're setting him up, yeah. you know, it's the greatest thing to watch our children yes. surpass what we have accomplished. Absolutely. Right. Like that's a parent's yeah. greatest hope. And, and um, also I think you're just priming their brains to, be able to learn other languages as they get older too I think right like don't they say that being multilingual. multilingual when you're a child yeah like it helps you like so even if and when they decide to pick up a European language yes. or whatever else yep. like I think there's a center in your brain where language I think there's like a language center it's in like your brain. that's right so, it's like it opens um, up new neural pathways um especially right. a language like Chinese specifically I don't know about other languages but Chinese is so different that it's literally a, like another part of your brain, something like that. Don't quote me on that. Okay. I'm like, <laughs> I believe that. I believe that. But you know, it, it, it's so, I believe it's it. so difficult to learn as an adult, you know, just because it's not phonetic. So you either know it or you don't, and then you can spend your, you know, your life dedicated to trying to trying to learn it and still not pick up. So, so absolutely. Like even if, even if they retain 20% of what they're learning now in school, it's still for me, good enough. You know, if you can understand, if you can express yourself on a very basic level, the rest will come. 
you know, when you have the need for it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, just like you said, it's, it's a good foundation for them. And they are actually learning Spanish as well yeah. in school. So it's kind of crazy. I don't know how oh, their little brains can absorb so much. It's pretty incredible. Yeah, no, that's, that's so great for them. What's the, um, what are, what's their school like? Is it primarily Chinese? I know there's a lot of non-Chinese mm -hmm. families here in New York that um, send their kids to Chinese immersion schools. Yeah. Um, so is it the same for you? It's the same. I would say it's predominantly Chinese, um, but predominantly Chinese American families that send their kids to mm -hmm. learn Chinese. So parents similar to, to us, um, where we, you know, we may know some Chinese, but we obviously don't want to lose it. We want our children to be able to retain it. We don't have the capability at home to teach it to them. And so there's a lot of those families, but there's a lot of diversity too. Like you said, non-Asian households who want their kids to learn it. And for various reasons, you know, I've talked to a couple of the Caucasian parents at our school and I'm like, well, how did you guys end up here? And for them, it's like they recognize, <laughs> right. and they're really like, why, why is it important to you that your children are learning Chinese? And they're just yeah. like, well, we think that, you know, the future, especially if you, they want to go into business or whatever it is, the future is, mm -hmm. is international, right? There's going to be so many opportunities that they'll have access to with these skills. And that's so true, right? The world is getting smaller and yes. there's, and if you want to go into business, for example, like, um, you're probably sourcing from Asia, right? Everything is made there these days. And to be able to have those language skills and cultural understanding is going to be super important for relationships, um, at least for us. Yeah, and that says something about, yeah, that says something about our cultural shift too, because it used to just be the expectation that, well, the people in Asia, they ought to learn English. Right. You know, if they want to do business with American and American companies, they need to learn English, which is why many, I mean, all my relatives that grew up in Korea, they learn English in school, mm -hmm. right? It's just like something that they do. Um, but it's great to see that it's it's becoming reciprocal. Yes. Like there people here are now valuing, oh, wait, I want to learn Chinese or understanding that it's not it's not just about English being the only language that matters. I think that's really significant. And not just that, but also like the cultural aspect of how you do business, right? And so um, just like you said, in the past, it was very much like, okay, how do the Americans do business? And this is how business is done internationally. But mm. that's not true. Wherever you go, in whatever region, you kind of have to respect the cultural norms of that area. And if it happens to be, you know, China or Taiwan or, or another Chinese speaking language, and I'm only referring to that because that's where my experience is, but um, it's important to learn how to carry yourself right? How to be respectful. And, you know, because these things factor into your success. Yeah. I mean, just from a level of uh, being motivated by personal success and not so much like the greater good of like international relations or whatnot, right? <laughs> Let's just talk about just from yeah, yeah. like an individual perspective, like what will help you succeed in life? These are skills that um, as a parent, as a mother, you know, I'm really focused on giving my children for their own personal success, whatever they choose to go into. And that's obviously going to come from my own experience and what I've come across, right? And so those are the things that I'm passing on to them. I think it's these are important across the board. I mean, whatever they choose to do, hopefully these will help them toward that path of success. And it's not because, you know, I'm trying to make a big change in the world, right? I'm trying to make the world a better place. One child at a time, like one person at a time, take, mm -hmm. take you know, right? Do you know what I mean? Like, I think if, yeah, if yeah. we're successful individually, then we're successful as a community and then we're successful as 
as a species. It starts really, yeah. you know, with each yeah. of us individually. Totally, because you see that anytime there is discord in the greater world, you trace it back to what's happening to that person individually. That's right. There with like whatever relationships they have that are maybe broken yes. or their own, the state of their health, yeah. mental or emotional or physical, like it's all, it is very much, it's all connected. So I think it is really important to take care of what's happening within our own homes yeah. and our own families and our own selves. And I just want to ask you one last question, yeah. which being a working mother and spinning, you, you're spinning a lot of plates and do you find that you have a good balance point of getting I mean it's impossible to get everything done at all times but like what is your flow to having the boundaries from work when you're with your kids or putting aside any potential mom guilt to get work done like how do you make all that work in your life you know what Leah I I would I feel like I don't think that anyone has balance. I don't think that <laughs> balance is real, yeah. right? I think that there's, mm, yeah. there's a, I don't, I don't feel like it. No, is. Yeah. no, yeah. there's no way. I mean, balance maybe overall, like if you step way back and you're able to look at the big picture and if you're able to achieve balance in like larger periods, then maybe you would call that balance being successful at balancing. But on a day-to-day -day basis, there's no way, you know, because there's times when you have to put more focus on your children because maybe they're going through something or there's times where you have to really, you know, focus on your career because it's a pivotal moment, right? Or whatever it might be, you know, there, there's constant shifting of that balance. And so I think it's a myth to say that there's a mm -hmm. this ideal work-life balance I think that it's a constant ebb and flow. You know, for me, I'll disappear off social media for like weeks or months at a time because I don't know, I'm really focused on being with my children, being present with them at the time, you know, to the point where mm -hmm. I'll look at my phone and be like, oh, I haven't taken pictures in a while because I'm just being present. I'm trying to like stay focused and be with them. And then other times I'll be like, okay, it's time I got to like, you know, maybe there's a campaign I'm working on or whatever it is. And then I kind of shift into work mode. Obviously when I'm at the office, I can focus on work. When I go pick them up, I don't focus on work. I focus on them. Right. So in that sense, sure. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, we all try to do that. I think, right. In terms of that daily balance, but in terms of like where your energy mm -hmm. energy is, I think we have to like remain flexible on that. There's going to be times where your children really need you. Right. And then you really have to like be in your energy present in your energy as a mother. And then there's other times where I have to be present in my energy as a wife. Right. Or, um, maybe I need mm. a break from all of that and I need to really be me and I have no, no <laughs> guilt when I need to take some time off and go do a girl's trip or like whatever it might be. And my husband is so supportive and encouraging of that. So I'm very blessed, but I have no guilt and I don't FaceTime them when I'm gone. Like I'll be gone for three days and I do, I do not do FaceTimes because they're just going to cry and want me to come home. And, you know, like, I don't need that because you know, it's my time. Yeah. Um, and so I think in that sense, I have a pretty healthy balance in terms of in, in my head where I'm able to like pick it up. Mm. And, and then when I need to let it go, I'll let it go, you know? And I think that's all that we can do. All that we can strive mm. for is to carve time outside and recognize what you need to be present for at what time, you know, and to, to make space for all of that. And so self-care that's like the, the big buzzword right because we don't want to burn out mm -hmm. and between work and kids you know family life I mean that pretty much it's like a hundred percent on both sides like you have to give right and so where is where, yeah. where are you like 
where are you as a, as a woman, as an individual, like, where do you fall into that? And we all struggle with that for sure. I feel like that's like the biggest, the area of biggest struggle for, for most women to retain your identity outside of motherhood and wifehood and, um, and work. And for me, I put a lot of effort in carving out time to focus on who I am as a person. You know, I really try not to lose focus on that. It's very easy to lose focus. It's very easy to, you know, wear the same mom outfit every day for weeks on end. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, and then occasionally I have to pull myself out of there and be like, okay, remember when I used to wear heels and put makeup on? Okay. <laughs> Let's revisit that Lynn. Right. Yeah. Right? But in terms of like the books that I read, you know, time for meditation, time at the gym, time to spend like on whatever passions or interests I might have at the moment, like those are really important to me. And I, I make sure to set aside time for that. If not daily, then at least weekly. And that's, you know, just, we need that. We need to like fuel ourselves, right? So we can be present for everyone else in our life. Yeah. I mean, I love everything that you said. You, I was just thinking, these are conversations that if we just met up for coffee to catch up, mm-hmm. we wouldn't get in this deep. And I'm like, oh my gosh, Lynn is so wise. Oh my gosh. Has so much so much good, good stuff to offer. And I'm like, I don't think I'd get this outside of the podcast because oh. it just isn't necessarily where a conversation would go. So right. I'm so happy that we, we've been able to do this. And me too. Yes. You said like, that's something about regarding balance. You were saying the need to be flexible and to not just to be able to, to know that it's really important to take care of ourselves and to not lose sight of what we individually need, but also to be like, well, I don't know, maybe my kid is going through something or maybe unwell. And to know that like, it's part of what we have to do to drop everything else and then be there for our children. But that's just for that moment. It doesn't have to define like everything about who we are. I, that for me tends to be like, actually, I was so looking forward to my son's starting camp last week mm-hmm. and he got strep throat oh. and um, he, he missed all of, he went to one day of camp and then the rest of the week was out. And that means I had no time yeah. to do my writing, no time to work on my pot, no time. Right. Yeah. And I felt so bad because of course I didn't want him to be unwell, but at the same time, I was so mad that I had lost my time and I felt like, Oh God, I'm just like, I'm going to be so behind. And it was just, just like, it was an inflexibility, you know, it was like, I just freaked out. And then of course, a few days later, he was fine. And he's been at camp all week. Mm-hmm. And it's everything's okay. Yeah. You know, like, okay, I lost a few days or not even I lost. A few, and that's what I need to not look at it. Like, it's just a few days were focused on taking care of my sick child. Right. <laughs> like, that's okay. That's like the part of that's the mom role of me that is really important and of course I choose that but like it comes for me with this like this guilt or this feeling like I'm falling behind Mm -hmm. and that's just like not helpful to have that you know instead it could just be like this is temporary this is my present moment and it's not going to be like this forever which is the week that I've had this week it's like oh yeah I've gotten to you know have have more time to do my own thing and how old is Riker he just turned nine. He just turned nine. Got it. Okay. So yeah. Christopher yeah. Um, is turning 11. He's you know entering that tween phase and I'm really seeing this big shift in his personality. He's just growing up, you know, and recently I've had a lot more moments where I'm like, oh, I can, I can kind of see where this is going. It's, 
you know, the, the things, the phases, the, um, the childhood that I thought would last forever, it's not going to be here soon, you know? And that is, yeah. a, it's kind of like, it's a really good kind of like, I don't want to say it's like a wake up. I don't know what the word is I'm looking for, but kind of like, it's, it's a good reminder, like, oh, this is not going to be forever. And when you're in the trenches of motherhood, when we have really young children, um, which we still do, right? They're still very young, but it's, it seems like it's forever. It seems like it's just never mm -hmm. ending. We're going to be in this like, oh my God, you know, our life is just like this because it really, it's like years and years and years of, of this routine of just like, you're sludging through it. You're almost like just trying to get by day to day. Right. But recently, like I mentioned, I've had these moments where I'm like, I can see it. And, and it makes me a little mm -hmm. like, oh my God, I need to hold on to it. I need to treasure it more. Right. Cause when mm -hmm. you're in it, you're not, you're not treasuring it. You're like, when is this going to be over? <laughs> God, this is hard. Right. Yeah. Um, but when you do get a little, like when you're able to take five steps back, you know, maybe you have friends who have older children who, who are off to college and they're empty nesters. And I, I have a few of those friends and I'm listening to them talk about their kids going off to college and like missing childhood. I'm like, what's that like? And I have to like really put myself mm. in that, in that mindset. And I realized like, there's so much more of life left, you know, and we are, this is, this is a tough time for us. We have young children. We have two young children, right? And we're still trying to retain who we are to still continue to build our careers, which is extremely difficult when you are also balancing, you know, there's that word again, balancing motherhood mm -hmm. and, and whatever it is. And so really, I, I feel for me, I've let the pressure off of myself a little bit and that has helped, okay? Whereas previously, I've also struggled with, oh my God, you know, how do I do both, right? How do I like keep moving forward, full steam ahead on my career. Like I got to get somewhere, like everyone else my age has already gotten this, has already done, been here, done that, whatever, right? And I'm seeing all these success stories, but I'm also sometimes like noticing there are sacrifices that are made. There's no way to have it all at the same mm. time, right? And so I don't want to use specific examples, but there are people who've hit like really high points in their career, but maybe then like getting a divorce or you know, I don't know what's going mm -hmm. on in their personal life. Right. But then you kind of like get a glimpse sure, of it, yeah. you know, and then you're like, okay, well, well, yeah. yeah. You know, something has to give somewhere. Right. And so for me, you know, and for everyone else, I want to say, um, everyone has the authority to decide what is important to them. Right. And so for me, what's important to me at this moment is my family and my children and my businesses with my husband. And so my quote unquote, you know, career in media or whatever it might be, that takes a smaller part of that pie. And I'm okay with that for now, because I'm, I'm starting to recognize that there's a long road ahead and I have so much time. And I didn't used to think so. I used to think like, oh my God, I'm 43. I'm over the hill. <laughs> like that, that's it. Right? I'm not going to have like, yeah. I'm not going to be who I am for very much longer. I better get it done now. And I used to have so much pressure and stress on myself to accomplish everything like right now. And I couldn't do it. And that, that was really hard. But now that I'm playing the longer game and I've taken my foot off the pedal a little bit, right? It's, it's just much easier on my mental health, on my mental state to, to give myself that grace and to know that, you know, even if it's 10 years from now, when my children are much older and I have less responsibilities at home, that I can still pick up where I left off and continue and still have a thriving career into my later age. I mean, women are doing that now. So it, yeah. I think we don't have to be like, oh my God, we're not doing it right now. And so we're failing. Like if we can just, if we can just remove that 
right, from our thought process, then things get a little bit easier and you're able to breathe more deeply. I love it. <laughs> Did that make sense? <laughs> I'm just- It made, I- it made so much sense. And I have chills like so many, so many times through this chat, I've had chills. I was crying at one point. Um, I just, thank you for sharing all of that, all your thoughts and the love in your family and that you have received from and are carrying on um, with your mom and just, and I'm just, I'm so happy that we reconnected and I'm so happy to be able to share this story onward on this podcast. Me too. Thank you so much for having me here. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Voices on the Side with me, Leah Kim. Voices on the Side is produced by Just Breathe. You can find out more at justbreatheproject.com. I would love it if you would tell your friends, rate, review, and subscribe to the show. It's a great way to show your support so we can keep bringing you these amazing conversations.